Welcome to the Dry Eye Coach podcast series, Click on Dry Eye, your insider pass to the most exclusive dry eye topic. The series will raise awareness about the current and future state of ocular surface disease. The podcast will focus on a variety of topics. In today's episode, we're excited to have my good buddy, friend, and colleague, Millie Brujic from Premier Vision Partners in Bowling Green, Ohio, to talk about where do you start your dry eye practice. Welcome, Millie. Yeah, thanks, Walt. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Hey, can you, to start us off, you know, I know about your practice, but not everybody does. So can, can you tell everybody about your practice, where you're at, what's the setup right now? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Walt, I'm a partner of a four location practice in Northwest Ohio. Um, it was 19 and a half years ago. I started with two senior partners. And over that time frame, we've just seen a lot of shifting and moving around in terms of um, what we've owned and things like that. And where we really are today, again, 19 and a half years later is four locations. We have eight doctors total and three of those doctors are partners. And I think my philosophy is very similar to yours, Walt, in that we, we care for the patient in the best way possible. And every single thing we do is very patient centric. And then we kind of go back from there. And one of the things that we've always kind of touted ourselves on is really practicing to the level of our scope. So whatever the scope allows us to do in optometry in Ohio, we make sure we do that and uh, elevate ourselves and care for our patients in that manner. So now you have a passion for dry eyes. So can you tell us why you're so passionate about dry eye? This is an interesting story because everybody kind of has that pivot point in their careers. And I had a single patient and I'll tell you why this patient was so monumental personally to me. So it was 2005 and in 2005, that was a special year for me is because it was the year that I became a partner in Premier Vision Group. So when you become financially vested in the practice, not only are you concerned about top line numbers, but you also get concerned about the expense side of the ledger. So I had a patient come in. Um, I used to refer to as her as an older 42-year-old female. I'm going to be 46 here in the next few months, so I now refer her or refer to her as the younger kind of hip 42-year-old female. But she came into the office, and I was you know three years graduated, and she came in, and her chief complaint was I can't see up close through my glasses. She was a minus one in the distance, and I refracted her at a plus one ad. So I did the whole kit and caboodle. We talked about progressive addition lenses. She walked out into her optical. She actually bought a nice pair of glasses. One month later, she was back on my schedule for an RX check. And when I asked one of my lead technicians that day, I said, why is she coming back? She said, oh, Dr. B. She says she can't see anything out of her glasses. So when I finally get her in the exam room, she was a really nice woman the first time I saw her. Get her back in the exam room, I said, so Ms. Smith, what's, what's going on? She said, I can't see anything out of these new glasses. And what was interesting was, when I heard her reading the eye chart and I saw what she was doing, she was literally blinking her eyes trying to reestablish focus. And I saw her doing that. And she looked at me and she said, am I supposed to have this hard of a time seeing the row of letters? I said, no. I took her glasses off. I placed fluorescein on the eyes. I put a cobalt blue light, held up a rat and filter in front of the slit lamp. And Tracy, what I saw was unbelievable a reduction in tear film breakup time, it was one second. She had inferior corneal staining and she had a serrated lid margin. Now, we have to bring ourselves back to 2005 when I was identifying all of this. And it was very evident based on that slit lamp evaluation and that fluorescein staining. Now I had to pull the slit lamp back and tell this person her vision was blurry, 
because of her dry eyes. So I first asked her, I said, do your eyes ever feel dry towards the end of the day? Again, this is kind of what we knew at the time. She said, oh no, they feel dry towards the end of the morning. I said, oh. I said, well, this is part of the reason why you're not seeing clearly. And I went through the whole spiel with her. She looked at me and she asked me again, one of these pivotal questions that changed everything for me. She looked at me, she paused and she said, is it because of my new glasses that I can't see clearly and that I have dry eyes now? And as crazy as that sounds to us, I understand why she thought that. So I realized not from a passion perspective, but from a necessity, I needed to do everything different. And what that started with was actively identifying these individuals. Because here's what I realized with this patient, I now identified this problem after she's gotten her glasses. So now it's my kind of problem that I have to work through. If we're proactive about identifying these patients prior to proceeding with something, and while I stole this directly from you, I, I heard you say this and I thought, this is beautiful. If you identify it on the patient or with the patient, it's their deficiency that you've identified that you're now helping them with. So it's their problem that we're now assisting them with. So I changed everything, Tracy, from that point moving forward, because I knew we needed to have some type of systematic approach to identifying these patients and then accurately communicating what the treatment options were. So that's exactly where we're going with this. Uh, go ahead, Tracy, I'm sorry. No, that's exactly what I was. I think I, I love it. Well, you and I are always on the same page with these questions. Um, so you, particularly mentioned visual acuity, you mentioned staining the ocular surface. What's your number one pearl that you think it takes to identify a patient with dry eye disease? Oh, Tracy, so I'll, there's, there's two pieces of information. The one is the one that kind of everybody talks about, listen to your patients, and that, that's obvious. We always try to listen to our patients, but as we, as, as healthcare and optometry in particular becomes a more efficient um, profession, it starts to get a little bit tougher to do some of those deep dives. But I will share with you that this one pearl that I put, put in place, and again, this is back in 2005, so we didn't have all the fancy schmancy diagnostics that we have right now. It was fluorescing on every patient at every encounter. I did it in a very strategic way. I placed it, wet it with saline, placed it on a lower palpebral conjunctiva and let it diffuse into the tear film. I looked at it with a cobalt blue light and I placed ratin filters on every single slit lamp so I didn't have to look, at, look for it. It was always there, it was readily available. That is, out of everything that we've done, it is still singly the biggest bang for the buck in terms of identifying these individuals and patients. So when you do that, and if we're thinking about systematically going through an examination, we got to check pressures as well. Yes. So are you are you talking specifically for a dry eye exam? Are you talking about someone's coming in, you know, they have a vision insurance? And can you speak to that? A hundred percent, Walt. So this is such a great point here. Um, sometimes I think we tend to overcomplicate things. I always kind of take a look at the process from the patient's perspective. And I always ask myself, well, what would I want? How would I want to be cared for if I was in this person's shoes? So what we do is as part of the pretest, that patient has their intraocular pressures checked. We use eye care tonometry. So that's already done. When they come into the room, they, they have their they're either a general VSP exam, they have Medicare, whatever they have. As part of my routine ocular assessment, I put fluorescein on the eye. Now, what's interesting is a lot of us will overcomplicate this and think, well, I don't have enough time to do that. 
it takes a second to put to open up the the fluorescein strip it takes a second to put the saline on and it takes a second to place it on the eye so i mean you're not talking about any major addition to the exam but i'll tell you what we see from that diagnostic test is where it's weighed in gold. Now, Walt, I will comment on one thing. So we do have some of these patients where we need to do Goldman Applination Tonometry on them. So if we do, I actually perform it after I've placed the fluorescein strip on the eye, but I don't use fluoresce. I'll then at that point put a drop of preparacane in the eye or tetracaine, and then I'll assess the pressure. And what you'll find when you do that is you'll never get that situation where, and we we all kind of know this clinically, you go in, you put the probe in, the probe floods with fluoresce, and then you take it back, you wipe it off, you wipe the patient's eyes. You just don't run into that situation because there's just enough fluorescein on the eye to get a really, really nice pressure reading on those patients. You're talking about the the, flu, uh, the fluoresce, so use your, your lysamine green as well. I know you and I have talked about the line of marks. You know, with so many diagnostics, I mean, so now or in 2005 or where we are now, where does someone start with diagnostics? So, you know, Walt, I'm so glad you asked that question. I think the biggest thing here is to create a process. Like when we think about, all right, what's your eye exam process? Every single practitioner that's listening has that process. They know what the technician's responsible for. They know what their flow is in, in the exam room. So, so everybody has to kind of dig deep and find out what's that one thing that they want to do. Some, for some people, it's a speed questionnaire. They want as part of the pretest process. We, we don't do the speed questionnaire until that individual is identified. So we don't give the speed questionnaire to everybody. For some people, that might be the right answer. I'll tell you that the, the, the amount of diagnostic information that we get from fluorescein on the eye is in my mind, I think one of the easiest ways to do it because that actually starts helping even clinically understanding more about the ocular surface because you start identifying things that you just didn't even know existed in your practice. This mild to moderate epithelial based membrane dystrophy before the actual clouding actually starts to occur. But these individuals who have fluctuating axes on their refraction you know they come back for glasses remakes or contact checks and their vision's just simply changing you start to see all these subtle irregularities that exist and you get a greater appreciation for those things now saying that that will actually build the stage for other things so once somebody has that in place and it's become a habit then they say well what else can i be doing and looking at well the next kind of inherent logical place is the lid margin and although we have access to great diagnostic tools to assess the meibomian gland structure and function, every single one of us has a finger that we can press along that lid margin to assess what those glands are actually expressing. So assessing function. And I'll tell you, well, one of the things I love doing just as a screening tool to assess meibomian gland structure is every single patient that comes into the office, when I pull that lower lid down to put the fluorescein, I actually take a quick peek at the, the um, palpebral conjunctiva, and you can actually see the meibomian glands. And you can very quickly get an idea of, is there shortening or are they full length or is there some type of irregularity that exists there? And eyelid transillumination with a transilluminator is just an awesome diagnostic tool. So these are all ways that you can implement these identification processes in place without necessarily investing heavily into things that you may not necessarily have in your practice. So they're all things you already have. But what I found, Walt, is the more you start doing these things and looking at these things, the more inherently you want the higher level diagnostics, because you know that that will take the level of care that you're providing from a diagnostic and a therapeutic perspective to another level.
That's brilliant. I love all of those takeaways that you have about using what we already all have um, in our offices. Um, why do you think artificial tears sometimes aren't enough when we get these patients that, uh, that are coming in seeking out our help? Yeah, Tracy, I'll tell you exactly why. So um, I started using the Inflamadrive point of care test almost immediately when it was available in the United States. And what we've just learned anecdotally from that and caring for patients is remarkable. You know, there's, there's actually a pretty large scale study that looked at individuals who for one year were randomized to either cyclosporin 0.05% or artificial tears for a year. And what you would have expected is the cyclosporin group to actually get better and produce more tears, which they did. And what you would probably expect is the artificial tear group to just stay kind of stagnant or really not change. What in actuality happened in the study is not only did they not change or improve, but they actually got worse. Although yes, artificial tears have their place to make people comfortable it doesn't necessarily do anything to modify the disease process, which is oftentimes deep-rooted in dysfunction. It's our duty as clinicians to figure out what is it that's causing the problem and what's the biggest cause of the lack of homeostasis that exists. If we do all of our testing and we say, you know what, we really think the meibomian glands are the most limiting factor that will set the stage for what we do next. If we feel like, you know, this patient has an active blepharitis, this patient has cholerets at the base of the lashes, that will dictate what we do. And if in the absence of any of those, in the presence of higher levels of inflammation, that will dictate some type of inflammatory control. So again, I think it's critical to understand that artificial tears has a place. I, I know that next year, we're gonna have access to really interesting things that we've never seen in the US. So we're gonna be able to make patients very, very comfortable with that. Hey, Billy. And so when we look at treatment, we know from the TFOS dues too, one of the takeaways is patients often have both uh, aqueous deficient and evaporative dry eye. So my question to you is, do you have a basic treatment? Are there basic things? I mean, I walked in the exam room, they came from a dry evaluation. I go, you need this, 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 and this. And that's even before I look in their eyes. But, mm -hmm. but how do you approach that? We, we always used to have this kind of academic discussion on, well, is it aqueous or is it, is it aqueous deficient or is it evaporative? And we realized, like you said, most of them are a combination. We're just clinically trying to figure out what's the majority contributor to the patient's dysfunction. So it really depends what I'm seeing, Walt. I am very, very targeted in the way I treat patients. I'll give you two perfect examples just to give you how different my thought process goes. So first treatment, patient comes in, they have blepharitis. I'm not going to do anything before we treat that blepharitis. And that's usually an antibiotic steroid combination used two to four times a day. And then it's usually seeing that patient back in about a week and doing a microblepharo exfoliation on the lid margin and supplementing that with some type of lid hygiene and probably a warm compress after that. That's very different, for example, than the patient that walks in who is on the computer eight to 10 hours a day you look and you're really not seeing a lot of abnormalities. The lid margin looks great. The meibomian glands are well, but the inflammatory is negative. In those instances, we feel like punctal occlusion may be the right path for those patients, those individuals who have maybe a more environmentally induced dry eye. So again, we go down different paths depending on what diagnostic information we're being delivered by what we're collecting as clinicians and also our technicians are. And then we create that 
what we feel is the best path forward to optimize the way that the ocular surface is functioning and also how that patient feels. So to follow up on that, you treat the patient, whatever you do, when you see them back? Because people want to know your protocol. I know Tracy has a different protocol. Uh, actually, I'd love to hear from both of you. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, sh I'll share mine first. Usually with any dry eye patient, it's anywhere from four to 12 weeks, depending on what we're doing. The blepharitis patient is the exception. We usually see them back a week for microblepharic exfoliation. But if we're starting them on any treatment, I'd like to give it some time. Usually, there's exceptions to the rule, obviously, but usually four to 12 weeks after that. If we're starting them on a corticosteroid, it's usually shorter. If we're starting them on a cyclosporin or a lofitograst, it's usually a little bit longer than that, Walt. Tracy? Again, my protocol bringing the patient back is also going to depend on what the underlying etiology is and what uh, treatment we're using. I have three main goals. Is the ocular surface clean? Is it calm? And is it protected? And so depending on what goal I'm trying to hit with the patient or maybe all of those, I'm going to probably see that patient back within usually two upwards of eight weeks, depending on the therapy that we're going to be using. So, you know, when you're targeting um, meibomian gland dysfunction, can you talk to us about kind of what your strategy is, what's, what's the first thing that you do, and how you kind of follow the patient along with that? A clean lid is a healthier lid. So I think that's one of the things that we tend to overlook clinically. I don't necessarily think it's something that we're trained to do. I'll give you kind of two two quick clinical pearls. One, I know that most of the time we were taught to look at the lid margin on low magnification. I think when we turn the magnification up to high, I think we'll see things that we just don't see on low magnification, including microbial populations at the base of those lashes and sometimes even that volcanic um, kind of sign where you see the, the skin at the lash margin in a volcano sign or a folliculitis as opposed to being flat or even involuted. Second thing is having patients look down and that can sometimes uncover collarettes at the base of the lashes. So I think really kind of getting in your mind that we need clean lid margins before we can optimize myphomine gland health because if they're not clean and we do advanced procedures, th then we're kind of, uh, we're, we're chasing our own tails on that. So consider some type of microblepharal exfoliation in your practice or some active way to actually clean the lid margin. Our protocol, treat with antibiotic steroid combination for a week then we have them come back because the lid margin is already more quiet and easier to clean for us. Then we clean it and then we continue with the antibiotic steroid combination for about a day or two. And then we have them use some type of wipe on the eye. Then we're, we're amazed how well the myboma glands may start functioning at this point. So we kind of let each step um, determine what we do next. So after that lid margin is clean, if the meibomian glands still aren't functioning the way they're supposed to, if they're still obstructed, then we start thinking about some of the more advanced procedures as well to, you know, we have we have a lot of choices. We have uh, Ilux, we have uh, Lipiflow, we have tear care. So there's just, there's just a lot of choices. And Walt, you gave me the best advice years ago when we were thinking about which, which, which of these to incorporate in our practice. They're all good. They all work. And statistically, they all seem to work very, very well. You just have to do one. You have to pick one that's right for your practice and you just have to move forward with it and make sure you're offering it to those appropriate candidates. And, you know, that's a great point, but not just offering it, but, you know, it's how we tell it to the patient and go, hey, you want to try this? No, I want to try it. This is what you need. And so you just prescribe it and do it. And, you know, if they, pay, they need it, they need it. So, I mean, there are so many great pearls that you just provided us, but I'm going to ask you to close us out with what are your final pearls 
when it comes to one of our colleagues that want to start off in, in treating dry eye disease? I think, I think two things, Walt, that I just want to leave kind of my colleagues with, again, because we, we've really entrenched ourselves in, in this in the last 16 years very actively. And I think it's, it's a two-step process. One is identification, because if you're just waiting for symptoms, you're going to mix, miss approximately 50% of these patients. Sometimes these patients are asymptomatic in the way we traditionally think about dry eye patients. We think about the patient with the dry, burning, stinging sensation, but that's, that's not always what the initial presentation is. So think of how your protocol is gonna look to identify these individuals. And I can guarantee you what you start out with will not be what you're using in the next one, three, five years. It will change, it will evolve, but start some type of consistent process so that you're doing it every time. The second thing is, think about what your first line treatment or therapeutic regimen will be. And think about how you're going to um, consistently communicate this with patients. Because when you do this a dozen times a day, if you're not efficient at it, it becomes a very laborious process. So you have to be able to effectively and efficiently communicate this in addition to what those goals are actually gonna be for those patients. We always talk about improvement in signs and symptoms and we're always encouraging and being very open with what the signs and the symptoms are and where that patient was, where that patient is and where we think we can get that patient. That was so well said and so beautiful and not only are the signs and symptoms important, but sometimes it's those small gains about giving patients back their daily lives, the things that they're missing out on currently, the things that they like to do. Well, thank you so much, Mila, for your time and expertise and helping our colleagues who are looking to start dabbling in and really getting into establishing a new dry practice. Thanks. Really appreciate it, guys.